Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking who. Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Witt here. Just a quick program note to let you know that I will be appearing on the Talking Who Do You podcast in an upcoming episode. Be looking for their episode about the audio drama The Juggernauts, and you will hear my dulcet tones on there as well as JG and Kevin. So give it a listen. Thanks. Kitty. You speaking to the mic? Yeah. There he goes. That was it. Kitty. Me. 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 It says you're going to give me treats. (laughs) Give me chicken. Give me pizza. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the invasive task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have our usually non-invasive three-person discussion <laughs> panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. We also have our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's Worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello, hello. And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've read for this podcast, and this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. We may be non-invasive, but you could experience some slight dermal abrasion. Yeah, so be careful of that. You may want to keep your your um, antibiotics ready. Uh-oh. Before speaking of antibiotics, if you hear us coughing, tis the season. I have a cough. Allison has a slight cough. By the end of the night, poor Dalton might have a cough. We'll see. Been breathing yeah. our air for an hour. Exactly. Before we get to talking about the book, please remember our new Patreon page. It's hardly new anymore. At patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive among po- other possible get it good to get it shit. You will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen Doctor Who book, not a Target book. We know that you have them. We know that you put them in your recycling bin these days. Perfectly <laughs> like fine. pulping comics in the 20s yes, and 30s, yes. <laughs> exactly. It's gotten to that point. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. As usual, we would like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, and Toby Bengelsdorf. And we'd now like to welcome our new patrons, Jay Barry and the Video Junkyard Podcast. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, guys. We also have a new discussion group. It's not new anymore. Where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts, and best of all, it's hosted on Goodreads. You can find us there at deep breath tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. Eventually, I will have that memorized. And believe it or not, it did say in the script deep breath. It wasn't me doing a Kevin Sorbo and going, <laughs> disappointed! <laughs> you know the story behind that, I right? I don't know that. You don't know the story? No. Kevin Sorbo's an idiot. 
So much of an idiot. I think in fact. that I, I have been made aware of. Yes, yeah, so much of an idiot. In fact, that there was a script in um, Hercules: The Legendary Adventures, or whatever the fuck it was called, and he had he was transported to another world and thought he had come back to his own world. And the stage direction in the script said, in parentheses, "Disappointed," all caps and quotation mark. Mm-hmm. He read it. And he actually did it in the scene. So he says, disappointed! <laughs> Wait a minute. This isn't my world. Disappointed! And the fact that they kept it. Do yeah. not want. <clears throat> Means that they were I mean, trying to embarrass him. It was yeah. a semi-comedic show. <laughs> True. We continue now with one of the two most important stories in season six, The Invasion. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who The Invasion, adapted by Ian Martyr from the Derek Sherwin script that aired from 11268 to 122168. Published by Target Books in October 1985. As of this recording in January 2019, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 159 pages. Alright. The Invasion is an important story for a number of reasons. It's the last time we're going to see the Cybermen, except for a brief cameo in Carnival of Monsters, for about seven years. Hmm. Well, seven years in Doctor Who terms, it's less for us, probably four. By the time we get to the Tom Baker era, they will return. Hmm. It's the first time that a writer who will later become a producer will write a script for the series, since Derek Sherwin will take over from Peter Bryant very, very briefly in a few stories, because he only produced two. At eight episodes, it's the next longest original Doctor Who story after the Daleks' master plan, owing to a four-parter that fell through at the last moment. It's the first story that Terrence Dix did script editing on, so he started his long association with Doctor Who with this story. Hmm. And finally, it's considered a sort of pilot for how the show will go forward from season seven onwards with stories set on Earth rather than on other planets. The Web of Fear had been such a tremendous success, mainly due to its Earthbound setting, that the producers decided to set their next Cyberman story on Earth as well. They commissioned it while making The Wheel in Space, in fact, but since Kit Peddler was more an ideas man than a writer, it fell to script editor Derek Sherwin to put together a script from the man's storyline. Problem is, because they're falling out with Mervyn Hazeman and Henry Lincoln over that whole Dominators thing, the production team weren't allowed to bring back Professor Travers and Anne. Oh, so yes. is that entirely new to the book? Not exactly. in the original script? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, which is why we have Watkins and Isabel. Okay. Yeah, we have them instead of Travers. But they were looking for Travers in the episode that aired. They wanted to do. No, no, no. They were. Okay. Oh, they do talk about him. They still talk about him, but he doesn't appear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That being said, it's a wonder they were allowed to bring Lethbridge Stewart back because he's also a creation of uh, Hazeman and Lincoln. But as we're going to see, he's about to become a series regular. So I guess they thought getting that fee every week wasn't a problem. Yeah. You may have noticed that Zoe is away for a bit being kidnapped and horrible things. In a box. Yeah. In a box. In a Literally, they crate her up for a while, put her back with she's the She's living in a cardboard box. Yeah. She's living in a box. And Jamie is off for a while being injured. And this is, of course, due to their respective vacations. Oh, that's dark. We make it sound like continually injured. Oh. Indefinitely for several episodes. No, just that one episode. In fact, it's odd for Jamie to be injured ever in Doctor Who. And this yeah. time he gets it so badly that he has to be, you know, put in a bunk somewhere. And it seems like 60s BBC was a sort of worker's paradise of like such generous vacation packages for well, all the cast members. You would think so, but if you're getting one week off 
And you're 45 weeks on. Yeah. I forget how how many episodes they, yeah. they film per season. The production schedule is It's almost like a soap, soap opera. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And that wouldn't improve until the Pertwee era, in fact. And then you will not have people going on vacation because they have enough time. Um, what may be a surprise... <laughs> Thatcher put yes. an end to that. What may be a surprise is that Ian Martyr, who by this point had not only written a Cyberman book, which we'll read later, I'm not going to tell you this, the name of it, and it had appeared with them on TV, didn't much care for them, which is likely why they're featured even less in the book than they are on screen. For a Cyberman story, this has very few Cybermen in yeah. it. Yeah. Which kind of makes it better. And finally, Nicholas Courtney, who plays the Brigadier and who knew Martyr, has a funny story to tell after uh, Ian Martyr died. Um, I'm going to quote it here. I'm not going to do his voice. I can't quite do that accent. When he was novelizing the Doctor Who story, The Invasion, he was chez moi one afternoon (laughs) to view my videotape of the adventure which had been given me by a fan. He wanted to compare the film version with the script he had been given. Imagine the difficulty he encountered when he discovered, as I had not, since the gift was a uh, tape was a recent gift, that the first two episodes had no sound on my copy. Still, he duly wrote the book. (laughs) Yes. Which is interesting because that would mean episodes two and three, because episodes one and four are still missing in the story. So he's got the script and he's got the video, but no audio. No audio. Okay. <clears throat> Which is interesting. There are a few things later on that make me that made me think, yeah, he saw the video of this and the way uh, Packer is killed later. Yeah, that visually, that's exactly the way it happens on screen. However, the animation company that is best known for having done Danger Mouse back in the 80s animated the episodes 1 and 4. So it's been released on DVD, the whole story, which is lovely. They did a wonderful job of animating, but they got something wrong. The same thing that Martyr gets wrong. Zoe is in her cat suit at the end of the mind robber Mm -hmm. she's not in this weird tomboyish outfit until later on so yeah whatever still because of that help that he got from nicholas courtney martyr renamed the russian book in the book nick courtney (laughs) i don't know if you caught that and by the way we need to talk about the timeline of the story at some point because unicontinuity is always a mess reasons we'll get into they're always setting their stories in the not too distant future like sunday 80 Mm -hmm. but not knowing where that future sits and it's going to become a problem later on this story manages to mess up cybermen continuity and we'll have to discuss the theories about why they're invading earth a good seven years before mondas shows up ah i I actually did wonder a couple places where we were relative to that and supposedly it's 1978 or 79 because web of fear took place in 75 and this is supposedly four years later and the only reason we know that is because we have a very firm date for uh, abominable snowmen that was 1935 and that's 40 years later yeah so there we go. So, will someone read the back cover for us? I will. Yes, yeah, so you have to pay for your sins. I do. Should, <laughs> I, should I describe my sins to the audience or just let them imagine mm. the worst based on I'll your Let them imagine the worst. I'll be even fun, more fun. Goodness. All right. He's got a sadistic edge, this one today. I do. All right. Materializing. That is not part of the blurb, by the way. <laughs> Materializing in outer space, the TARDIS is attacked by a missile fire from the dark side of Back on Earth, very off-key. Back on Earth, the newly formed United Nations Intelligence Task Force, led by Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, is disturbed by a series of UFO sightings over southern England. 
Meanwhile, a large consignment of mysterious crates is delivered to the headquarters of International Electromatics, the largest computer and electronics firm in the world. Three seemingly unconnected events, but in reality, the preparations for a massive Cyberman invasion of Earth with one aim, the total annihilation of the human race. Well, not initially, but yeah, true, true. There's sufficient timelines. Yeah, exactly. They're always at least up for it, even if it's not the central goal. That's true. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start by um, pointing out to my panelists here, they didn't. They got a redacted version of the book, so they didn't get to see the, the Cyberman on the cover, the unit symbol on the cover. They didn't get to see that blurb that Allison just read so beautifully, and I actually had to redact parts of the table of contents as well, mm-hmm. because they also mentioned Cybermen. So I want to start here. How much of a surprise was it? I thought that you had become so keen on avoiding spoilers that you didn't want us to know that the Brigadier was in here. I thought, okay, well, it was a bit of a surprise, but I'm not sure if he needed to go to such lengths. So I was surprised because I thought I'd already read the part that you wanted to conceal from us in advance. Oh, I see. So you thought it was the Brigadier coming back. Yeah, I thought it was, you didn't want us to know that it was going to be a unit story. Well, that's true, too. Um, I had, I had, uh... A few cues that is possibly going to be Cybermen related, um, especially with it being a computer corporation that they're interacting with, but also um, whenever I initially heard about mind control and knowing about the past with that with the Cybermen. But um, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't completely convinced until um, the doctor and um, Jamie were in the the train and Jamie gets into the box with the thing and I was like oh yeah that's definitely really that's where you got it yeah interesting well because I wasn't thinking Cybermen because at the beginning I guess they did talk about the silver spacecraft they talk about it was giant alien mouth. I was yeah. expecting something much more organic. I wasn't thinking machine men, cybermen, hmm. or uh, or any of the sort of more mechanical villains. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting that Ian Martyr is actually trying to do something the production team tried to do as well. It's 85 pages before the cybermen mm-hmm. are named. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I think is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the problem is, of course, there's a big honking Cyberman on the cover. They're mentioned in the black blurb. And in 1968, the Radio Times did a feature before episode one went out of the location filming uh, showing the Cybermen coming down the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral. It's a fairly iconic shot. No sense of restraint. Also, no. the cover graphic, uh, an interesting airbrushing, but I think it's supposed to look like the Cybermen's firing a laser weapon, but it looks like he's about to do some welding. <laughs> so, yeah. It's a bubble gun. The, the, the weapons in the story are kind of weird. They, they've never really, in fact, it's not until the 80s that they lock down what the Cybermen use as weapons. Is it a flamethrower, sort of? Kind of. Except it causes the sort of um, negative, positive, negative effect like the Dalek weapons used to do in the 60s. Mm. But it looks like it sort of flames out and up in such a way that you have to press it firmly into the abdomen of your enemy. And it's, <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have much range. <laughs> yeah, it's not, yeah. not much of a range weapon, it looks no, like. It's it's much more effective on screen. Yeah. And it's pretty effective in the book because it's Ian Martyr again, and God damn, his... The descriptions of the deaths. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The vomiting blood, the... Now, what did we last read by him? We read... Um, were you here for the Dominators? Well, I wouldn't necessarily remember before, the title. It's the one before Mind Robber. <laughs> uh, the one before the last one. 
Speak to me as a person who, okay, doesn't remember uh, titles, you weren't here remember for, stories. Yes. You weren't here for Mind Robber, yes. but you were here for the one with Dulcus and the yes. pacifistic race. Yes, yes, yeah, I was. That's the last one we read. Very by. good, okay. Um, yeah. I think if I didn't know anything about the Cybermen, though, the way that he handles the, the reveal was pretty effective. Mm-hmm. Like, if I mm-hmm. didn't know shit about Doctor Who and I was reading this, it right. would have been a surprise. Well, good. So. Excellent. That was kind of my point in doing that. Yeah, yeah. You had to give somebody a damn surprise at this <laughs> moment. Well, all right. Uh, where do we want to start? Should we start with the fact that it's much more a story about the Doctor and Vaughn than it is a Cyberman story? Okay. I was, I was, I was going to... What were you thinking instead? I was, well, I was just going to think... Um, Initially, I was kind of annoyed with the treatment of Zoe for about the first half of the book. Really? Well, she she was kind of relegated to... I didn't know that she went on vacation, but her being kidnapped and being the damsel in distress and her having a little photo shoot with Isabel. And I was like, oh, here we go. Here's her becoming this just like typical female character, but... Then later in the story, Zoe and Isabel kind of having some agency and really being like, no, fuck you. We're going to do this. Yes. We have a plan. We're going to enact and we're going to help figure this out and mm. get evidence. So I, I liked that. The fact that they, they, they actually did have something to do instead of just being, you know, mm-hmm. in the tower being saved by the helicopter and all that. That's a point. Did you feel the same way? Or? If you had told me ahead of time that there was... A scene in the book where Zoe starts off dressed in this sort of tomboyish, almost drag sort of way, and then discovers she loves wearing wearing feathered boas and posing for photographs, I would have rolled my eyes so hard it would have risked an injury. (laughs) But I actually thought it was a lot of fun. Really? Because uh, Isabel is shown as being, yes, she's very fashionable, but she's also kind of an offbeat weirdo. Yes. Like a doctor would be. She kind of is. And the fact that she's not sort of like a classic fashion girl, but she's... She's very technical, technically knowledgeable about photography in a way that comes up several times in the plot as well. But mm-hmm. or, so I don't, I haven't seen the scene. But usually a scene like that would be very much about Zoe learning to love vamping for the camera, but she'd also be kind of like showing off and flirting a little bit with the doctor and Jamie, and <laughs> they're completely irrelevant to the scene. It's more like she's found like a new fun thing, and oh, this is so fun with the feathered bow and everything, <laughs> and the cameras. And the uh, the two guys are irrelevant. Yeah. And um, it, um, I guess the eccentricity of Isabella is when she talks about writing everything on the walls. And the, I think the doctor asked her, why don't you just write on a piece of paper? Maybe Jamie asked her <laughs> yes. that. Which, yeah, you, know, you don't lose a wall, yeah. which is exactly something I'd expect for this doctor to yeah. say. Not Hartnell doctor, but the but Trouton doctor. The Trouton doctor, Yes, yeah. to say... So, I may have talked about this before, but um, <laughs> to go a completely different direction, Big big Love, the HBO series yes. <laughs> about um, <laughs> Mormon polygamists had a couple of different opening sequences during their run. And the second one is, the song is falling, and it's sort of, it's the, the four main characters individually sort of like falling uh, against a black background, sort of <laughs> like falling indefinitely in space through the air. Mm-hmm. And the... the first half of it you see um the bill paxton character kind of like falling and he's looking up and he's like looking at the women we see them individually and it's very much sort of from his perspective mm. like they're each characterized differently but it's how he sees them how he thinks of them with this or that mm. personality trait 
And then there's this change, slight change of the music, but, well, funny cop, <laughs> sort of falling <laughs> through the air. And she's wearing like a reasonably like kind of hoochie outfit. They do a lot of jiggle with the character, but she opens her eyes right. and there's this change in the direction where even though the same basic things are happening, there's the same amount of jiggle and the same, you know, for camera perspective, you see that it's uh, switched to the perspective of the three women and their experience as they are falling through the air. Oh, and like it becomes this much in more internal thing where like one of them, uh, where it's, yes, yes, where like one, like sorry actress who played Barb, I should know your, Jean Triplehorn, mm -hmm. it's like you know, has her arms sort of an outward position and then... Uh, the one who was in Kids. Yes, and the one who was in Kids and in Broken Glass, yes. like, it's almost in a fetal position with her eyes closed, and it's all these different experiences, but there's Close almost, the, the perspective is different even though what's going on is almost exactly the same. And hmm. suddenly I don't mind all the gratuitous jiggle at all, if that makes sense. Oh. So even though this is a scene about like girls doing girly things and kind of being fun and giggly, it's not like sort of vaguely voyeuristic. Oh, that often is. Okay. They don't seem infantilized. It's like, oh, they have a new fun toy that they're playing with. And hmm. it actually was much better than I expected. Okay. Maybe it's just, uh -huh. you know, I read it when I was in a, a <laughs> happy frame of mind. And then <laughs> later on, well, you know that I love a character who has expertise, you know, being able to use it in the adventures. You know, both Zoe and hmm. Isabel get to use their knowledge, where I always complained about Steve not getting to. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Use knowledge of computers and cameras. And True. Jamie's allowed to do that more, but his knowledge is mostly about fighting and catching things and nets. Yeah. <laughs> it comes up a lot, yes. And so it was nice. That is true. It was nice for them to see, to see one of the female companions able to, to do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm wondering, I'm wondering how you felt about the later sequence, though, because Zoe breaking the machine down does kind of get them in trouble, but not mm -hmm. to the same degree that them going down into the sewers yes. gets them into difficulty. It's almost as if the story is punishing them for taking the initiative. Yes, and there's that weird conversation oh, God. that, yeah, okay, I didn't actually do a screenshot of it. Well, okay, what's your take on the conversation? Well, I was wondering about your take on it, because I know exactly the conversation you're talking about. I tagged you which, it. You go first. Yeah, <laughs> where the brigadier says, we'll, um, <clears throat> we'll let our guys handle yeah. well, it. Well, Isabel is saying, oh, you need this kind of film, this kind of exposure, this kind of photographic mm -hmm. equipment, and he says, you know. Yeah, and he says, oh, we'll get our guys onto it. It's, mm -hmm. no, it's nothing, it's not a job for you. Yeah. And she calls him a man. And then. And italics. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then Jamie says, well, he's right. Mm -hmm. And that gets Zoe going. Mm -hmm. And that leads all three of them to do their whole Scooby Gang thing. And those mm -hmm. crazy kids go down into the sewers and take pictures of the Cybermen. I'm sorry, Doctor, but I think those crazy kids have gone off to the sewers to get photographs of the Cybermen. What? And get themselves in some trouble, almost get killed. And there's no one who goes into a sewer in any of these books who ever you know, turns out to have made the wisest decision. <laughs> let's let's go to the sewer. That is true. That could have been so much better, but it also could have been so much worse because usually the way this plays out in, in the past books is Steve or Jamie makes a gratuitously sexist remark to one of the female companions that is either offhanded that's just how he thinks or he's intentionally goading right mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the female companion does a sort of you know hands on her hip neck roll well that's because you're not modern or something and right. is sort of this kind of cringy fake girl power that's uh, a, yeah. a non-girl's idea okay. of girl power 
This was more they kind of blow him off with a couple of remarks and then immediately trick him into being part of their plan. <laughs> it was more that his, it was just kind of what they expected of him and it didn't really get under their skin okay. in a way. Yeah. But he just, they just immediately incorporated him into their scheme mm-hmm. in a way that was not condescending, but just sort of took for granted that, of course, they were going to continue to control the situation. So yeah. it was an interesting take. Okay. Yeah, well, and they even say, like, once once Isabel sees the way that the Cybermen are and the, the way they attack and kill, she didn't even realize maybe even the danger that she was putting herself in. She thought she right. was just going to go down there and take some pictures, be incognito and secretive. And Usually that's Jamie's job, to come up with an asinine plan and nearly get everyone killed. Right. So yes. it didn't, I didn't actually see it as a punishment quite as much because... There's usually a guy doing that, getting okay. them in, into trouble. <clears throat> well, I wondered how both of you felt about Turner seeming to blame Isabel for the death of one of his squaddies over that incident. Because it almost seemed as if the story was saying, yeah, you asserted your independence and look what happened. Someone died. Mm, I took him as, I guess, unreliable. Okay. I didn't think the story was saying that it was her fault, but I could I could have totally misread that. I mean, it did feel, it did feel kind of like, yeah, he was blaming her, but it's like, he could have gone down there himself and gotten killed. Yeah, that's so true. It's... That's true. And <clears throat> he could have said, "Don't you know when you're an Ian Martyr book, and there are going to be brutal deaths, no matter how smart we are." Right. Yeah. About it. I I think the only reason I thought uh, wondered about that was because I can't even remember where I heard this lately, but I heard recently that Ian Martyr was never that much a big fan of the women's women's lib movement, mm-hmm. which is interesting because this seems like someone who admired it and didn't entirely get it. Yeah. But, yeah. like, you know, good faith effort is exactly. how I read it. That's how it goes in the original story, though. Mm. So I think that's more Derek Sherwin, and that's Ian Martyr doing a faithful representation of what mm-hmm. Derek Sherwin wrote. Have we read adaptations before of Sherwin stories? Or is this we have first not. Book? Okay. And we won't ever again, because Derek Sherwin wrote only this one. All right. Because, as we said um, in the intro, Kit Peddler had the idea, but it was basically just notes scribbled. Mm. And so it was... Sherwin, who said, okay, this will make a good four-parter. Oh, we lost a four-parter. Shit, we've got to make this an eight-parter. And managed to craft this eight-parter that actually feels like it's worth all eight episodes. Yeah. It kind of surprises me. That's one of the Trouton stories I'll put on in the background. Mm. Because not only does it have just a beautiful music soundtrack mm. by somebody who never did music for the show again, but also... So if we liked this, don't get too attached yeah, to what you're saying. Yeah, it's kind of it's weird. It's know. a one-off. It really is. And in that way, it kind of feels like a pilot for what's to come. Because it does feel very Earth-based. In fact, I was going to point out to both of you, this may be the first time in a while. Actually, no, that's not true. It seems like season six so far has not been based under siege stories. Mm, the Dominators wasn't. Mind Robber definitely was not. In fact, Allison, you need to go back and read that because yeah. we loved that. You would one. really enjoy that one. Yeah, I think you would. And this one is not a Bayesian based under siege story. No. It's, so they're finally breaking out. I mean, they kind of have done Invasion of London stories before, but True. London's not a base. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And they haven't done it quite this way either. I will say that for a, a splash of difference, I've complained about how weird I am of people running through hallways and tunnels and corridors and sewers and this time we had some vertical variation there was some <laughs> elevator action mm-hmm. and the vertical awesome. sewer shafts yes as well fire so, escape you know, on the outside mm-hmm. of the it was building like perp- perpendicular to the usual <laughs> i was gonna ask you if that felt like padding or whether it was you know exciting enough to keep you going through it 
it, it helped carry it along for it, me. It okay. was padding, but it was pleasant. I mean, it's entertainment, not a documentary. So it's all padding, in a yeah. sense. So I, I didn't think it was as gratuitous as some of the lengthy chases that we've been subjected to in the past. That is true. That is definitely true. Ian Martyr actually had a longer page count to work with this time uh, because they knew he was doing an eight-parter, but he still manages to condense it a lot better than he did with Enemy of the World. Mm. Because I think looking back on that book, we all agree that that's probably Martyr at his worst. Dominators, it's still kind of... Here, though, he's got good source material and he manages to rise to the occasion for it. Hmm. So what else? Um... It's exactly the kind of language I want to read in an adventure story. Is it? It's in what way? It's um, it's fun. It's colorful. Yes, it's a little bit pretentious, but you know, fun pretentious. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it it's not too little and not too much. Okay. No, it's not some kind of you know. It's not pretentious in the Hemingway impression right. way, but not quite so overweening as uh, who wrote the Crusaders. Oh, oh, David Whitaker. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I can see that. So it moves along nicely. It has it has color. And some of the ones that are more sparse I've liked as well. Mm-hmm. But this has, uh, it's it's not cotton style, but it's cotton's amount of decoration. Yeah. Even if it's a different type. And I, I can see and that. cotton's okay. my favorite that we've, right. that we've read so far. So it's not yeah. as much humor, but it's it, it's fun. It's, it's an enjoyable read. It's, it's enough gruesome violence to make it not just a farce (laughs) but it could be so much worse it's not actually nearly as ugly as it as less brutal violence has been described in other books that is like it's not ever sort of inappropriate to the story yeah and yet this was the controversial book this is the one that had controversy for two reasons one the amount of violence in it and two the inclusion of the word bastard Hmm. (laughs) because packer calls the doctor a bastard and huh. that did not happen on screen. Oh. But yeah, I, I know it's kind of quaint for us to think of that when we've got a, you know, pussy-grabbing president who objects to being called a motherfucker for some reason. Uh, well. Yeah, it's hard for us to put ourselves back in that oh. age when bastard was considered something that but children was, should not hear. But it was written in, you said, 85? 85. I could see that in 68 for broadcast, it being yeah, not acceptable. The mid-80s, bastard was a no-no? Huh. Yeah. Okay. It, the word's never been used in, in the series, to my knowledge. So here's some quality violence. Yeah. <laughs> the next moment, half the driver's head had been blown all over the inside of the cab. Yes. <laughs> that, that seems quite violent. The truck uh-huh. lurched forward and then toppled sideways into the ditch. A stack of paper mache trays crashed through the open back doors, and hundreds of vivid yellow egg yolks started merging and congealing on the hot black tar. That is nice, isn't it? Yes. yes. And it is dark imagery, but it's not just blood for blood's sake mm-hmm. it sort of finds a sort of poeticism in the image so I, yeah yeah i could see that i think i objected to the vomiting of blood that one of the characters does when he dies mm-hmm. i might have missed that that yeah. was that was uh, a bit over the top i thought especially yeah. since it didn't happen on screen like that at all going back slightly mm-hmm. to zoe and isabel zoe's allowed to have a good time yeah. And I liked a lot of things that were done with Victoria about, about her screaming so much. It's only periodically she's allowed to have a good time. And That's true. sometimes it seems like the female companions are kept in more of a state of misery <laughs> in some ways. Well, of frustration or peril. And, oh, yeah. 
And I, I know that all the companions are in are in peril, but it's it, it's fun to read about someone Agreed. having fun on their adventures. Mm-hmm. Agreed. When we get to Sarah Jane Smith's last story, for instance, she's going to give a whopper of a speech in which she talks about what she's been through as a companion. <laughs> but then when we get her again in 2010, I think is when they brought that character back, she talks about how she misses the splendor of going mm. to alien worlds and seeing all that and just being dumped back on Earth without a buy or leave. Mm. So yeah, yeah it's well, damned if you do and damned if you don't. You're right. There's more. F- the fun bits of the story have more fun than the usual. Yeah, I yeah. think the fashion scene, I guess, more is comedy mm-hmm. than, than anything else. I will say this: one big difference in this from the televised version is the fun is taken out of the last episode, because weirdly enough, the two funniest parts of episode eight are when Vaughn and the Doctor go to destroy the shack. Vaughn is killed. He's His body is hanging off this, you know, mm. whatever. And the Cybermen are shooting at the Doctor, and you have Troughton dodging little BBC explosives, jumping and going, ha, 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 and <laughs> grabbing his ass as he does so. <laughs> and it's like, oh my god, really? And that's not in the book, thank is it God. Supposed to be comedy, or is it yeah, just... <laughs> it's Trout and being comical. Probably because they did all those location scenes first. Yeah. So they probably had no idea how serious it was meant to be at that point. But Marta brings that back, up. and also the Doctor preening for Isabel when she's taking pictures of him at the very end. That's a very comical scene. In fact, you don't even realize the Cybermen have been defeated because you're watching the Doctor posing for Isabel. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Whereas here, at least, we have a definitive ending to the story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, something that, that confused me uh, looking back was kind of the, the beginning. They're talking about the compound yes. or whatever they they were referring to it as. And the community. The community. I at first they were doing more of a sort of men in the high castle sort of situation where, or mm-hmm. was it <coughs> Snow Crash? It was more of a commercial dystopia. Yes. Yeah, but they Maybe. don't ever mm-hmm. really go back to that, yeah. refer back to it at all. No, not at all. It happens in the televised version too, and I'm kind of surprised that Ian Martyr included it. Well, it, it, it works fine to have this one one person meet this end, but I thought they were setting the scene for, he's just out driving through the countryside, but at any time the patrols from this private company right. might right. show up and ask to see his papers, but yeah. no, I guess it was just this one area. Yeah, well, in my notes I even said it's interesting that that entire first scene sets up a situation with the mentions of its community somehow being connected to the company like the town has been taken over by the company. Yeah, yeah. In much the same way... Um, I thought at first it was Britain had been taken over by the company, no, but then no. it was much smaller. It's much more an echo of a, um old British science fiction serial that neither of you will have seen called Quatermass 2. And in it's very Qu- obscure. You've probably never heard of it. Well, I wasn't trying to be that bad about it. It's Jeez. true, but you know, no need to presume. I can show it to you anytime you want. I have it on DVD, damn it. Anyway, so in Quatermass 2, when the aliens take over, they essentially take over some of these townsfolk around a company. Then they build a company to create the food that they need to sustain them when they come to Earth. So there's very much this feeling of 
paranoia. It's 1950s, so you're feeling mm-hmm. like the Russians are coming in. No, yeah. it's the aliens. Yeah. And that this seemed to be an echo of that, but they never get back to they it. They never go back to it, and so it was like, why, why even put that in there? But yeah, especially I, when there's so much story, it's not like it was just you know a, a yeah. two-parter. Yeah, Martyr could have easily probably pruned that out, and somehow made that delivery driver be exactly what he was, which is an undercover agent for Unit. Yeah, trying to you know figure out what's going on in the company, and he's blown, had his cover blown. Something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is odd that that's there. And then it's still in the novelization. I think that's a case of a novelizer trying to make it exactly like it was on screen and maybe forgetting that not everything needs to be there. Yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of this was uh, giving me Bond feelings. Yes. Vaughn, Vaughn was very much a, uh, a Bond villain mm-hmm. in ways with his secretive uh, door that would slide around. <laughs> yes. No cat. The the <laughs> pin that he twisted and his uh, his henchman that was going and attacking people and oh being angry God, that yeah. he couldn't do more and yeah it was getting it was getting a lot of like Bond feelings from this even the the scene with the the helicopter um, rescue was <laughs> exactly. very very action oriented and I was I was oh, imagining uh, just you wait yeah just you wait. <laughs> season seven and eight. Oh my god, you've seen nothing yet. Okay. <laughs> well, we're going to see... Uh, this is giving nothing away. We're going to see a lot of unit okay. very soon. Yeah. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very much like this. But you're right. Ian Martyr is kind of punching up those details. Mm-hmm. Because when his uh, companion, Harry Sullivan, is introduced in the first Doctor Who story... He goes on an undercover mission and Sarah says, this is your chance to be a real James Bond. And of course he gets coshed over the head and immediately uh, <laughs> captured. But when um, Ian Martyr, around this time I'm thinking, he wrote something called Harry Sullivan's War, and it's very much Harry Sullivan as James Bond. Mm. So we're going to end up reading it because it's just kind of fun to read those in order. But yeah. Marta's very much a fan of Ian Fleming stuff and probably the movies rather than the books. Yeah. Did you notice the Doctor had some of those quips as well? Not whom. Who? That's like, oh God, I can't even imagine Travel saying that one. (laughs) Yeah, it's... I can imagine it was sort of like a mocking the pretense. Yeah. I I guess I read it as making fun of a person who makes that correction rather than making it in earnest. I... See, I thought of it as a Doctor Who joke. Yeah. Oh, a little, a little too yeah. long. Oh, wow. That, yeah. I, I, sorry, I was in, enjoying it enough that I... <laughs> it's in chapter I overlooked two. the possibility of that level of lameness. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. No, it was totally a dad. Oh, it's goodness. totally a dad joke. Chapter two. Let me find it real quick. Because even I looked at it, I was like, I, do, <laughs> I did not remember Somewhere that. out there, someone is saying, see, Susan is the doctor's granddaughter. He must have offspring. He makes a dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> evidence! Evidence! And I'm sure we've just lost another two v- listeners saying, oh, God, they're being negative again. I can't believe this. Uh, it's page okay. 27. Because um, phantoms are known for their positive commentary. It's when he's leaving Vaughn's office. And Vaughn says, telephone in a day or two. We should have some news then, Vaughn proposed as they shook hands cordially at the door. And may I ask whom I've had the pleasure? Not whom. Who? The doctor quipped slyly. Oh, 
And it's capitalized. Slyly looking at the camera. Yes. And you hear the Bond theme da, 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 in the background. <laughs> he has a few. He has one at the very end of the book too. <laughs> the he, brain just filtered that out. It's something I a pun so bad I didn't want to accept it. <laughs> oh no! It's kind of insane, really, that that he's given him that. Where is it? The quip is in chapter ten. He calls the brigadier the brig. No one calls the brigadier the brig except his own men. So that's one weirdness that kind of makes him very, uh, there it is. It's in that same sequence that I said that um, Martyr took all the comedy out of. He adds that quip. Probably because that little bit of the doctor sh- jumping and shouting and grabbing his ass would be hard to represent on the page without looking ridiculous. Even though it's really funny when you see it on screen. (laughs) When you're quite ready, Doctor, he gasped resentfully. We have an invasion on our hands. The Doctor grinned cheekily at him. Oh, really, Brig? It looks like suit to me. Oh, Mm. Oh, Ian. Mm. (laughs) You're dead and we'll forgive you, but God. Yeah, occasionally you get moments like that, and that that adds to the James Bondiness of it, I think. Mm -hmm. A lot of time on Naffy T. In fact, the person who uh, wrote our main review for this time, I'm going to leave it up to her to explain what Naffy T is and why that sequence is so important, but yeah. I just got so lost. Naffy T. I just happened to glance at it in my uh, notes, and I was like, oh yeah, we have to talk about Naffy T. We also have to talk about... Some weird stuff with the Cybermen. The Cybermen breathe. Mm-hmm. And they and they don't just breathe. They it breathe. smells. It smells. It smells like oil. It smells like rubber. I took it as ventilation. Like cooling tower sort of a thing. I, I don't know. Yes, but they don't need it. In fact, it's well established. In fact, we know that from um, Wheel in Space. They're going through vacuum. They don't need air. We'll know in a later story that they don't need air, but we also find out in that exact same story, oh God, I'm going to say the words, that Cybermen can be choked to death by gold dust because it corrodes their breathing apparatus. Isn't that kind of the opposite of what gold is good for? Yeah. Huh. (laughs) Yeah. That's kind you, of interesting inside out. You glommed right onto it. Wow. You'll notice that the new series never has the mention of gold as a weakness of theirs ever. Well, that's what happens when you cut chemistry class, kids. <laughs> exactly. It's, supposed, it's supposedly the perfect non-corrosive metal. I'll be a science fiction editor. It'll be fine that mm-hmm. I was absent that day in class. And yeah. then, yeah. We've got J- Jerry Davis to thank for that. That's going to come up when they come up in seven years again. And it's going to stick like a fly on a fly swatter. That weakness to gold all the way (laughs) into the 80s. Oh, God, it's just ridiculous. But at least they're they're breathing here, but they have oily exhalations and rubbery breath. Mm. That makes me wonder. Remember how I said that Ian Martyr had done a Cyberman story, so he worked with... I'm wondering if he's remembering what the breath of those Cybermen sounded like and what it smelled like to be around them. Maybe. They're just smelling the actors in the costumes, yeah. and they don't breathe very well. Ah, oh, I got and a whiff of that breath. guy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's it. It's a, weird, it's a weird detail to include. I don't think it's ever going to be included again. But Cybermen breathing? I mean, it's kind of creepy when they're down in the sewer under the rubble oh, and they're, like, yeah. sneaking by yeah. them, but... Yeah. I, I, ha- I have to wonder if he's got them confused with Santarans because 
um, he's going to write the Santarin book from the 1970s too, and he did that story as well, and he gave them oily breath and that, so I'm wondering if he's got his mm-hmm. monsters confused a bit. I, I accepted it as ventilation and cooling until you reminded me that it's a recurring plot point that they don't need they don't air need to air. breathe. They don't need air, and yet they can be choked to death. It, uh, yeah. Uh, Cybermen anyway, though. <laughs> Cybermen. You haven't dated them for years for that reason. I mean, no, I really haven't. What do we make of the fact that this story is set supposedly in 1979 and it's seven years before Mondas comes into Earth's orbit? What do you make of this? And do you want to hear what others have made of it? Because <laughs> kind of going into the deep weeds. Yeah, the, the, the whole timeline of, of everything was just kind of confusing overall for me okay. i couldn't really make heads or tails of did it bother you at all i don't no i don't think it really bothered me i didn't notice it really until i was looking over your notes but uh it was kind of confusing yeah thinking back about other books i mm-hmm. guess thinking well when did all these other things happen in comparison to this and how do they know the doctor if this what huh? right and i think viewers at the time probably wouldn't have caught it either yeah Except for the really rabid fans, because they existed even then. Allison, did it bother you at all? Or? I, I was actually not sure what the sequence was, because I didn't go back and look up the year okay. that, that, that those previous stories were set in. Mm-hmm. It was all sort of vaguely in my mind, in a 60s idea of what the 70s through the early 2000s will be like. But since they're all right. future projections of those time periods, it didn't really stick in my head which one is set where since no, they're also at that point they were fictional futures okay in or Martyr, that way they were speculative futures Ian Martyr doesn't seem to care about that either mm-hmm. I mean it's not Jerry Davis writing it thank God because then we would get that in the beginning the Cybermen rule the earth you know that whole prologue yeah. that we used to get to each one of his books there are two possibilities there are two in fact there are many theories but here are the two that I like one is the one that seems to be borne out by what the new series has done. Peter Capaldi's last story. He says, Cybermen will spring up wherever hum- there's humanity. Mm. Mondas, Telos, Marinus, Planet 14. What do you think? Exciting, isn't it? Watching the Cybermen getting started. They always get started. They happen everywhere there's people. Mondas, Telos, Earth, Planet 14, Marinus. Like sewage and smartphones and Donald Trump, some things are just inevitable. And it's like, oh, that's interesting, and here's why. And in fact, Allison, I think you're going to appreciate this because it's going to bring in somebody that you know. Uh, a little bit of fan lore about that conversation with the cyber coordinator knowing the Doctor and Jamie from Planet 14. Mm-hmm. The name of the planet is given here as Planet Sigma Gamma 14, but it's just 14 on screen. In one of Colin Baker's Doctor Who comic strips in Doctor Who magazine, Grant Morrison, no less than Grant Morrison, wrote a story in which the aged Jamie McCrimmon is visited by the Doctor to clear up a reference to Planet 14. In this version of events, Jamie has managed to remember his travels on the TARDIS. He says something about a cyber leader making reference to recognizing the Doctor from Planet 14. But as we see in the scene, they were nowhere near Vaughn's office when that conversation was had. They never heard about Planet 14. Well, Morrison's signature move is to improve an existing franchise and actually make it more interesting. Yes, and he kind of has done that. But here's how he did it. 
Um, he retroactively made the Cybermen originate from the planet Marinus, rather than from, from Mondas. So the, the Vord, you remember the Vord? Keys of Marinus, those things? Uh-huh. They became the Cybermen in his version. Okay. And it's all based on what appears to be a continuity error. Now, the new series has Capaldi making that speech, which implies two things. One, wherever there's humanity, a version of humanity that can get technologically advanced enough, there will be a version of the Cybermen. They will call themselves Cybermen. They may look different. That's interesting. I think it would usually be. They may go by many names, but the mechanical race will always evolve. Interestingly, so they'll always be exactly. called this, but the... The physical manifestation may differ. Right. As a matter of fact, uh, one author, and we'll get into this way later, says there's a difference between uh, cyber natives and cyber factions. So this is a cyber faction. It's not Mondasian Cybermen. It may not even be Talosian Cybermen. hmm. It may be another race of Cybermen. Just this next stage of development. Exactly, which is why they look different. Now here's the other theory. The one I like better. (laughs) That... The Mondasian Cybermen that we've seen, the one with the cloth faces, those are the civilians. These are the warriors. They're the soldier caste. They're the ones that you send as a forward mission to kind of break down any sort of resistance. They're sent from Mondas to break down resistance because Mondas is seven years out, which is why they have the fleet and everything, and they've been planning for it with Vaughn for five years. Which kind of makes some sense a little bit. In fact, in that same Capaldi story, when he sees the upgraded Cybermen, he says, oh, those are warriors. It's like, oh, okay, there you go. So that it could be either of those. Or I could be just, you know, twiddling my fan finger up my ass because it feels good. <laughs> because this is very, this is very, very nerdy kind of stuff. But I'm sure most readers would probably say, ah. You've uh, come up with some striking metaphors tonight between yeah. that and the fly water. Well, that's true. <laughs> Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Yeah, they'd probably say. No, it makes sense though. If, if either way, mm-hmm. so they could be these could be Mondasian Cybermen. Yeah, or it could be Cybermen from some other Something mother. Something else. Just <laughs> give me a second to get that. <laughs> what else? Martyr referring to the Doctor as the Little Time Lord. Hmm. We're not supposed to know he's a Time Lord yet. We're not? No. Oh. Remember? In fact, it's Martyr. Clearly not. No. It's Martyr who's done that the worst because yeah. he did it in Reign of Terror. Mm-hmm. He, that's right. You read Reign I was of say, Terror. I thought I'd seen references to it in previous books. Yeah. yeah. There have been multiple other references to, to him as a Time Lord. Yeah, that's true. And it's usually by authors who should know better. And in Martyr's case, he should, but he calls him <laughs> Little Time Lord twice, I think. Mm-hmm. It's not what I thought was sort of fun language for an adventure book. Doctor thumped the console and unleashed a tirade of insults against his juddering machine as it growled reluctantly back into operations. Then, like a crazed concert pianist, he madly manipulated the switches and savagely kicked the column while staring defiantly up at the gigantic threat blotting out the moon and other galaxies beyond. And <laughs> we've you know, talked many times about how it's hard to write the second Doctor and give a sense of personality, but there are several descriptions like that in here that give a good sense of his physical comedy that's so yeah. hard to write about. Yeah, mm. Imar is really good at that. He captures the Troughton Doctor. In fact, I was going to ask you, Dalton, if you felt this is the Troughton Doctor. Because oh, yeah. you've liked him so far. Yeah, the, the comedy's there. Um, especially, I, I liked every time he got on the radio and he kept saying, over and under, or <laughs> over and in, or however, however he was... <laughs> 
<laughs> signing off. Down and out. Down and out. <laughs> yes. um, and he never gets it right. <laughs> yes. Nope. And that's all martyr. That doesn't happen oh. on screen at all. But I, that was that was a good bit of comedy there. It's a good <laughs> balance of adventure and comedy for a story like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True. Um, something that I I feel like I maybe missed or I, I'm not sure. The, the TARDIS cloaking itself? Yes. Well, no. <laughs> Here's What's the going thing. on there? That 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 thing, the one big... of those circuits that the Doctor yanks out, yeah. is the thing that kind of guides the TARDIS's appearance. Okay. It's not the chameleon circuit, because that's what it's called in later stories. The chameleon circuit is the one that is supposed to change it to blend in with its surroundings. Yeah. This one is just the circuit that kind of establishes what it looks like on the outside. They give it a specific name, in fact, um, which doesn't sound anything like what it's doing. And in fact, I don't even know why. I don't even, for the life of me, know why that particular circuit needed to be repaired, except that they wanted to do a TARDIS landing on the cheap. Yeah. Yeah. If I you... thought it was part of... Well, okay, so here's where an ongoing story I kind of miss as it ebbs and flows. When we were reading about the Hartnell Doctor, at first, all the stories mentioned that the TARDIS was misbehaving. Right. And Doctor didn't have good control over it. And maybe I missed the point where he was supposed to have maybe gained control over it. Or did writers just stop writing about it? Because Jamie says something like that in here. Like, oh, this thing never works right anyway. It doesn't know where we're going. So I thought it was part of the ongoing problem of its dysfunction. But I don't remember a story where they actually deal with resolving or explaining it. It just seems like Mm -hmm. an ongoing... Well, and the fact that they went from being on the moon Mm -hmm. to being on Earth, it's still (laughs) in the same time period. So the Doctor has at least figured out how to move it in space, if not time. Yeah, he's he's gotten better at short hops. Yeah, Yeah. was the way a later Doctor will put it. So I guess our question is... Or my question, I shouldn't try Dalton into this, is are we building to an eventual resolution for this or is it going to be an open-ended story for years and years and years in the 70s? Open-ended for years and years and years. The TARDIS is never going to function perfectly. It's never going to function completely well. But is there... Is this being built up to sort of a grand explanation why or it's just sort of part of the motif? It's kind of a junker. Oh, that's right. We, We... we have that's right we don't know anything from the books yet how the doctor got the tardis do we no Mm-mm. oh and i only knew from you know new who from the last yeah, yeah. few years and i don't know if that was the original explanation that's the or original not. explanation um though i don't think the writers knew that i think the writers thought either the doctor built his own tardis and therefore didn't know enough to really make it as robust as it needs to be or he's got a rackety TARDIS that needs constant repairing and such. Yeah. It's only in the Tom Baker era that we're going to find out, oh, it's an obsolete model. He's driving okay. the TARDIS equivalent of Model T. Okay, so they are kind of, if not building up to it on purpose, they're going to the explanation of he stole an old one. That, yes, yeah, okay. that's exactly it. Which of course no, that's Doohu, actually satisfying. Yeah, which do who establishes definitely because we see it happening, mm-hmm. which I, I thought was a brilliant sequence mm-hmm. myself. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. So we're going to get a lot more of that, except soon we're going to get no TARDIS at all. What? Yeah. You'll, you'll know it when we get there. 
I guess we were. Yes, I, that should be hmm. noticeable. Yeah, God, I, I, I cannot, I cannot keep a secret at all. That's <laughs> I, I at least haven't told you when, but yeah, Megatron bomb. What is this Transformers? <laughs> yes, <laughs> and they're Inhuman killers from another galaxy. No, in fact, all <laughs> to to quote to quote Luke Skywalker in the last movie, every word in that sentence was wrong. <laughs> They're not inhuman because they used to be. They're not killers because they tend to convert their victims rather than kill them. Mm-hmm. And they're not from another galaxy. They're from our fucking galaxy. Uh, you know. I know. <laughs> but then Turner says, so you're saying they're from another world? You just want to hit Turner over the head. It's like, didn't we just say another galaxy <laughs> does mean another world? Dipshit. Well, he is a soldier, so I guess I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh my word, the letters we will get. Oh god, yeah. On paper. I didn't say vet, I said soldier. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a difference. I I love our veterans. I I thank you for your service, etc. etc. Yes. Okay. So back to what you wanted to talk about. Anything else that Um Vaughn being uh cybernetic? What? Yeah, that's another plot thread that isn't really developed all and that well, is it? The fact that he is... The Cybermen want to convert him and make him completely cyber... A Cyberman, but... Mm-hmm. But he, he wants to retain his brain. Yeah. So, what's going on there that is never resolved? It's like, never resolved. <laughs> um, it was an interesting idea, I thought. Yeah. And you get the sense that this has been going on for a while. When he says there's been five years of planning, it's like, oh... Yeah, they've, they've been UFO sightings over that company for five years. Yeah. Suddenly they've got this monolithic circuit that's in everything that seems not to do anything. And he's partially cybernized. Yeah. And so are his workers. Because mm-hmm. there's the one guy who's moving things in the... Uh, you have to wonder how many of them have been converted, though. Yeah. Even partially. And what happens to them once the Cybermen attack? Because mm-hmm. they're not all killed. And I did expect more follow-through on that. Yeah, and there isn't. There isn't. We do get a later story that shows that there's still Cybermen in the sewers. But that's about all we're going to get from yeah. that. Walking around? Kind of. Hmm. Kind of, something like that. In <laughs> fact, thinking back on that story, I just realized those those are time-traveling Cybermen, so they may not be these Cybermen mm. in the sewers. Oh my gosh. That would be playing yeah. the long game, yes. Oh god, yeah, it gets really devastatingly confusing by the time we get to the It becomes 80s. like the urban legend of, you know, New Yorkers going to, yes, yeah, so or say going to Florida and bringing <laughs> back alligators and tiring of them releasing them to the sewers and now they breed there, the idea that <laughs> yeah. Cybermen are just still walking around. Mm-hmm. They're not reproducing new ones, it's just they're so durable. It's the same ones from <laughs> decades earlier. From oh, good God. Yeah, th- that's not followed through. It's an interesting plot point. Yeah. And it should make Vaughn a little harder to kill in the end, but he goes down like a ten pin pretty easily at, at the very end. Well, and it makes me wonder if if they can kill him with their own weapons, why don't we just use their weapons against them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Except, no. He wants this weird emotional converter because <laughs> he knows that's going to work. In fact, that, that may be part of it. Yeah. That the cyber weapons may be designed in such a way that they can't be used against themselves or something. I don't know. But if if he's been if he has been 
I'm assuming he used their cyber technology to convert himself, mm-hmm. except for his brain. Yeah. So he would, yeah, I don't know. Do you want to hear something even weirder? There's a non-canonical book in which we discovered that Vaughn actually survived. Which makes sense, because he's only been shot by a cyber weapon. Mm-hmm. He probably should survive. Yeah, that. if he's... Hmm. Yeah. What I have, what I, what I love, though, is that Martyr is capturing the Vaughn-Packer dynamic. Because that's one of the best relationships in the whole thing, where Vaughn is just... It's like, oh my god, Packer, you've done it again, you impotent fool. And you have to wonder why he keeps him on board. And the fact that Kevin Stoney, who played um, Vaughn, does have a drooping right eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he writes it into the book. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Usually they don't even mention that because hmm. that same actor, and you remember this, Allison, he played Mavic Chen. Played who? Mavic Chen. I don't from know. From Dalek is. Master Plan. Oh. Yeah. Oh, because I haven't yeah. actually seen it. Okay. Exactly. Okay. It's the same actor okay. playing Vaughn and Kevin Stoney. And Kevin Stoney has the drooping eyelid as Mavic Chen, but because he's doing his squinty little oriental white man in yellow face mm. routine, you don't notice There's it. so much yeah. more to stare at than that. <laughs> yes, that was exactly. that was the other thing that really reminded me of Bond villain. Just like the, yes, the, uh, the, squint. the physical attribution that... Oh, that's right, because Blofeld has the one bum eye, doesn't he? That's the Donald Pleasance version, right? The the first one didn't. Am I getting it wrong? Donald Pleasance played him first, and then there was another actor who played him in uh, Her Majesty's Secret Service. I can't remember if they both have it. If both iterations. Because I know the Pleasance I know the Donald Pleasance does. And it is, yeah. Yeah. And the cat, of course. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Maybe Packers his cat. (laughs) It's <laughs> odd job. Yeah. I know this is hammy and over the top, but I kind of liked this. Vaughn's being condescending to Packer and whirring around and being generally insulting, you know, for your bungling ineptitude. Packer opened his mouth to object, but then closed it again, and his resentment seeped away to collect like poisonous pus in a festering boil. <laughs> yes. And that was a nice humanizing moment. Yes. Uh, he has to swallow it, but it doesn't actually go away. Mm-hmm. And that was... Yeah. And you would think that that would lead up to something. But yes. yes. I kept yes. waiting for a betrayal of some kind. The Packer's going to come in and try to shoot Vaughn, but it never happened. But no. it's kind of a, not, not terrible. It's like an ongoing tension. So he's still mm-hmm. he's still out there, still feeling that. <laughs> still just waiting to go off, if you True. will. Yeah. Until he gets killed, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Quick, give me your Dirk. <laughs> I love that line. Oh my god. Yes. Which is always described as wicked looking. The wicked Dirk. Of course, if it's 1986, the, the meaning of the word wicked is slightly different. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's wicked. <laughs> Tubular. God, watching the gay porn from that era, you hear people talking about something being wicked, and it's like, <laughs> Jesus, God. I mean, not that I ever do that, of course, but. <laughs> And how does Jamie know Kilroy? Yeah, that okay, confused so me. Is that a World War II era yes, reference? It's yes, World War okay, you have like the nose and the hands yeah. over the uh-huh. Kilroy. Okay. And Jamie was the one that points it out. Could, so, you could have picked it up in his travels, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Let's hope so. Maybe it's. But then he would have been so proud that he recognized it. Yeah, uh, exactly. I don't know. And yeah. Zoe seems to know who Big Brother is, yeah. which is less strange. Okay. But... I forget. 
when we got Zoe from? We got Zoe from sometime in the 21st century. Okay. So, sometime, supposedly, she's from the year 2000 or thereabouts. So okay. she's this era. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but... So she she would likely know about She probably that. would. If, if not the reality TV show, then definitely the 19... The yes. Orwell reference. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So... I love the fact that Martyr does have them going down the stairs from St. Paul's Cathedral. He actually writes that into the story. And there are all sorts of sequences in this book that were not achievable on screen, such as the um, the car attack in which Jeffrey is killed. He's killed very differently on screen. In fact, he's killed in a very odd way. They had to come up with a different death for him because they couldn't do the location filming. Mm. And um, that row upon row of Cybermen that Packer sends off, you never see that. You're lucky if you see eight Cybermen at a time. And that's only on location. So this feels a lot bigger than it did on screen. Yeah, that... that <laughs> the, the scene with him, yeah, sending them down into the sewer was kind of weird to me. In what like, way? Well, just imagining this 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 hole that he opens up and it's like, <laughs> all right, there you go. <laughs> climb down. Run along now. Group one, yep. you go. And then they all just like single file, climb down. Like, what? That's not menacing. <laughs> yeah, and it would have been harder to achieve on screen because the poor Cybermen couldn't, had no peripheral vision, so they no. couldn't have seen. I thought it was supposed to be like imagery of vermin, like the idea of rats fleeing into a sewer or coming up out oh. of a sewer or like a tree stump, something like that, that they're kind of swarming instead of behaving yeah. like humans. That's a point. And then I'm just picturing the Rat King from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. So. yeah. But then why bother doing that if all the humans are kind of switched off? Yeah. Yeah, the invasion plan itself is kind of odd. They, yeah. they, they're never very good, the invasion no. plans. No. And then they want to kill everybody. It's like, wait a minute, didn't you want Earth no. for mm. your own and to cyber-convert, but you're going to send the Megatron bomb? And you're giving up when there are only, what, like six total people here that aren't affected by <laughs> yes. your weapon? What? Exactly. You're that worried? But then again, if they know the doctor, then yeah. they would be worried. So you're saying they just have be. no follow through, and they should give more of the old yeah. college try. <laughs> yeah, or you could kill us all if you really wanted it. If you really tried. Yeah. <laughs> I do love that they do try to give Vaughn some late character development by explaining why he wanted to do this. But yeah, I'm not sure we even need our villains to have that much character development. We no. just need them to be villainous. I need motivation from a villain, even if really? it's even if it's quite thin. Okay. Even if it's even if it's kill them all, or I want to rule the world. Were you okay? Kill them all because I hate them. Or yeah, I, I do demand it at some point. Okay. There be some. So that was satisfying. Yeah, some kind of motive of, I'm evil now, and I I do evil thing. I'm evil because I had this accident the other scientists called. Now I hate, you know. Oh, yeah. I'm depraved on account I'm deprived. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Throw us a vote. Well, people, you know, even psychotics aren't just, you know, Mm -hmm. randomly evil for no reason. That's eh, true. Characters have to have motivations. That's Mm -hmm. true. Something foundational, definitely. So, as we always do... Let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews, or in this case, a online review, 
of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast, you want to have your review featured here. When we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, and comment in our new Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before reading discussing the book ourselves. Average rating for this story is out of five stars is 3.75. It seems to be 3.7 the usual range for these? No. Okay. No, it's usually the low threes. Okay. Or yeah. the high twos. Okay. Uh, in this case, and this is going to surprise you, uh, Dalton, it's four points higher than The Mine Robber. So, Wait. overall, people like The Mine Robber uh, less than this less one. Than this one? Didn't Mine Robber was negative? No, no. 3 point. It was like 3.6. Like okay. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. It was yeah. negative point. Okay. No, it was good. No, no, no. I mean three, um, sorry, decimal points. So yeah. it's, I, yeah. Probably oh, like oh, People 3. really 6. didn't like the mind dropper. No, no. no we didn't go to like negative integers. No, no. <clears throat> One of our listeners, Carrie from New Zealand, actually went to our discussion group and wrote this review, giving it four stars. It's a little on the long side, but I'm going to read most of it since it was written just for us. I actually find it harder to review good books I like than not so good ones I don't. Oh yeah. Yeah, we have that problem we too. Do too. This is why we're called negative and why people hate us on iTunes. Okay, two. I know it's plural, but well. Well, yeah. In a good story, I get caught up by the writing and the telling and fall into the story. Something has to be either really good or annoying to catch me up enough to come out of the story and note the point. That means reviews of good stories have a tendency to become a recollection of nitpicky little complaints, which is what we were doing. So what notes did I make on the invasion? Martyr describes the TARDIS, the doctor at the TARDIS console, like a crazed concert pianist, he madly manipulated the switches and savagely kicked the column. Yes, I can totally imagine the second doctor doing that with glee. What is Naffy Tea? I need to know because the status of the tea follows through, and then in parentheses she says, according to the Telegraph, it's Naffy Break Tea, which has been served to British service personnel since 1921, hopefully not the same batch of it, is said to differ from the average cuppa due to its premium quality blend that gives it a rich, strong taste and a real military flavor. I don't know. A military flavor. Don't know yeah, it tastes like gun oil. Flavor. <laughs> yes. yes. It tastes like gun oil. There were a couple of occasions I questioned whether Jamie or Zoe would have the pop culture knowledge they display in the story. It doesn't matter, it adds to the atmosphere in the story, but like I said, it popped me out of the story momentarily. Jamie writes, Kilroy was here. Oh, he writes it in the dust on top of the lift elevator. Jamie actually writes it. Mm-hmm. I looked this one up. Wikipedia tells me it's a U.S. expression from World War II. But he also doesn't draw Kilroy. Okay, so just headcanon here. He's he's familiar with Kilroy, but he doesn't understand the joke at all. Mm-hmm. Because it's not from his time. Maybe. I guess. Maybe maybe the uh, the point is that Jamie is lame at references. He probably is. <laughs> but she says, is this on the TV? I could dig out my DVD and check it, but I want to get this written first. I think it is, because I looked it up. I looked up the uh, record, and yeah, it is there. Except he didn't do it. I think it was in the elevator shaft. Later, Zoe comments that Big Brother is watching us. Same question, why would she know this? It's also a comment that I think works better in prose than in dialogue. I may need to rewatch after all to see if it's on screen. But hey, another happy note, and it's about the tea again. The Brigadier dunked the remains of the biscuit impatiently while he waited for the situation reports. It fell apart and floated on the top. 
I love that far more than it probably deserves. <laughs> it's a little moment, totally unimportant yeah. to the plot, that shows character and adds so much depth to the tale. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, It's moments like this that make Martyrs so good at producing something that feels like a novel rather than a transcript. That can't be said for all the other Target novelizations, some of which are really little more than a transcript with a bit of padding. Okay, here's the one thing that I really actually disliked instead of just noticing. I, I agree with her on this. Jamie is opening a manhole cover, and Isabel, with her photographic gear slung around her neck, looked on admiringly. <laughs> he can move a small object. Well, I guess yes. it is heavy. <laughs> why, oh why, did we need that last word? It's unnecessary. It's unneeded. And the fact we're sexualizing a man instead of a woman for once doesn't make it any better. It makes it also, a little better. Yeah, it also reduces Isabel's character in a way that damaged her later flirting with Turner, because now she seems shallow instead of interested in the latter. That makes sense. I'm probably making a huge mountain out of molehill here, and of course a woman can admire two different men, but it wa- it just wasn't necessary in a strong book that was managing well without doing any objectifying. Grrr. It was, it, was a, it was a weird moment. It was. See, I finished on a sour note for a book I enjoyed reading. <laughs> Something small becomes a bigger criticism because all in all, it's a good book that I liked. Honestly, it's a good novelization, and I'm sorry all over again that the world lost Ian Martyr too soon. So, do we agree with our listener from New Zealand? And what was the uh, rating? Even four. Allison. Mm-hmm. Tony. I know you just finished the book recently, but do you have... You're not going to let it go, are I you? I am Mike? not. You <laughs> it was a procrastination. Book. I had a big week. And you had the book for weeks. This, this is oh. the sin to which he... Yes, more than this, one. Yes. Yeah. This is the sin to which he keeps alluding. I can't imagine... Uh, well, I'm assuming it's captured the imagination. That's okay. So while I pour myself a drink... Can't imagine can, what others imagine. You can pull your thoughts together. He is drinking Coca-Cola. For I am indeed. So, um, out of five stars, how many would you give it? I would go with three, but my three is probably more like her four, because three mm. is quite high for me. It is indeed. And that is, even though there are all these sort of dangling uh, elements of the plot and, mm. you know, little little anachronisms relative to the, you know, the, to the characters, but it is actually a very complex story when it comes to the chronology of when we've seen the Cybermen do what relative to when the stories were aired right. versus when the stories are set, mm-hmm. what eras the different characters are from. Mm-hmm. And it is a lot to juggle. Yeah, it is. So, yes, there are some anachronisms, but this is, we're still in the era when it was considered disposable television. I know 85 oh, yeah. is you know later, and he could have... I earned some of that out, but I, mm-hmm. I it's, it's part of the genre. Yeah. It can be perfect and everything. And I, I, I found it such an enjoyable, you know, fun adventure that... You know, I, I've talked many times about how sometimes my... Actually, not sometimes, but every single time my ratings can be fairly subjective relative to how the book hit me relative to frame of mind that had nothing to do with the content of the book. Like the mm-hmm. one I literally read on the beach, and of course it seemed terrific. Right. Kind of like ice cream after swimming and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> but it, but I, I enjoyed it very much. Okay. And, and you're right about that, that this is something written by Derek Sherwin as if it's referencing the series history. 
so it's building continuity for the very first time. We haven't really seen a book like this that says, oh yeah, these characters we met before, mm -hmm. we met them before previously, mm -hmm. we've met these monsters at this point, this has happened before as well. I mean, we got that with the Daleks. But, but it doesn't seem true. like a, a crushing load of homework to do either. No, mm -hmm. not it, it like seems, the series does now. It feels like it enriches <laughs> it, yes, but I mean, you have a sort of like... You used to didn't you didn't used to have to know about coffee and be educated about coffee to <laughs> order and drink coffee, but now I feel like an idiot when I, you yeah. know, order coffee. Yeah, and it, you don't it, know about naffy tea. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. it's quite martial. Yes. <laughs> Whatever that tastes like, freeze dried astronaut food. I don't know. What to Something like that. So yes, it has these imperfections, but I thought it was actually a pleasant balance of of what of, of the best parts of these stories. Okay. Dalton? Uh, I'm going to agree with uh, with Carrie. I would give it a four-star rating. Um, I really enjoyed Martyr's writing style in here. A lot of the descriptions were really, like, I would say juicy. There was a lot to, to grab onto with the details. Um, again, I, I liked a lot of the, the kind of Bond aspects to it. It did seem like a really fun adventure story. Um yeah, and I felt like everybody pretty much had something to do. It didn't feel like any character was just kind of left to scream in a tower for, for too long. Um, no, nailed into a box, yes. Yeah, I did like I, the, the bit about the, the boa sticking out. Yes. yes, the little bit of feather sticking out. But yeah, uh, I, re I really enjoyed this one. It, it was long, but it didn't feel like it you know as i was reading it i wasn't like drudging through it like some of some of the other books like we had mm -hmm. mentioned donald cotton earlier i enjoy his writing but reading the the books that he's written are they're very dense yes they are. and this one had a lot going on but it seemed to kind of clip along at a good pace so okay yeah, four stars for me and for me i had kind of the opposite experience with it because I'm so familiar with the televised story, because I will put it on in the background whenever, mm -hmm. that it was a bit of a drudge getting through it. In fact, I was having difficulty finishing, mainly because we get to that sequence where they're chasing and the helicopters and all that. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. oh my God, oh my God, this is the part I fast forward through and I watch it on TV. <laughs> and here it is in loving detail. Yeah. And yet... The fact that it is there in loving detail says something, and the fact that Ian Marjorie can make it tense. And the new stuff. The very few new scenes that are here are really good scenes and expand the story. So the sexist references still bother me. Yeah. I can't get around that, but then that's not his fault. He just chose not to do anything about them. They were in the original script. So for me, it's 3.5 out of 5, so I'm falling somewhere between Allison and you and Carrie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, somewhere between. That there are really good things about this book. The few things that are bad, such as the Doctor's Bond quips, I could really do without. <laughs> I don't need the Doctor talking like James Bond. Well, and the sexism does one... The sexist comments do something that unintentionally do something that I actually kind of like is so when there's a guy who makes a sexist remark and then a woman responds with a sexist remark uh, to him even if it's meant to be funny it actually shows how ugly the whole exchange is yeah even even if it's not meant to be ugly it's mm -hmm. so it ages so badly in such an ugly way that mm -hmm. it, maybe it's not bad for like you know I, I don't know if if modern teens are digging up 1985 Doctor Who novelizations it's actually not bad to I mean I remember I you know read a lot of 
children's literature of previous eras when I was younger. It's actually not a bad experience to say that used to be like a non-weird thing for people to say to one another. Yeah. Like it's, it's not bad to see how ugly it is. Yeah. I'm going to get a little more of that, especially when we get to the novelizations from the 70s stories, because, oh my God, the 70s has nothing on the 60s when it comes to non-PC language. <laughs> oh God. But yeah, 3.5 stars. Thank you guys. Happy 2019. Happy 2019. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we get the Crotons. Yeah. The The Crotons. Yeah. You're going to want to get your salads out because it's time for the Crotons. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. Shucharga Book Club Podcast, all in order to spaces like Crazy Person. You can also visit our subreddit, which gets used from time to time at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash dwtargetbc. Feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes and give us a thumbs up or comment at YouTube. We're at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperordalic forward slash videos. you also hear me bitching in my commutes, Emperor Dalek's commutes. The first 14 episodes are there, and there will be new ones as soon as I start driving again this semester. Follow us on Twitter. We're at dwtargetbc. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, SoonCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and intermittently on Podbean. If all else fails, you email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We are done. (laughs) Holding in that. That was Tony. That was Tony, not me. (laughs) Or if you play this for the outtakes.